All right, so welcome back to the Cracks in Postmodernity. Today we have Patrick Deneen, who is a professor of political science at the University of Notre Dame, the author of several books. Patrick, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks, I'm happy to be here. So I wanna start with um, one of your most popular, I wanna say a very revolutionary book, Why Liberalism Failed. Um, in my opinion, it really jump-started, like I said, a revolution of critiques of liberalism in a lot of spaces that you didn't necessarily see them before. I got a lot of people talking um, a lot more critically, uh, looking more closely at the concept, the ideal of liberalism. Um, you have people across the ideological spectrum quoting the book. So first I wanna ask you, are you surprised by the, the breadth of reactions you got? Um, did any of them strike you in particularly as surprising? Yeah, I wrote the book, uh, it was published in 2018, but it was, I would guess it was probably about 10 years in the making in the mm -hmm. sense that I was a lot of the, a lot of the ideas I was working on in different publications, both popular and academic. Um, and I, I sort of think in retrospect that had I published it um, before 2018, it probably wouldn't have done nearly as well or gotten as much attention as it had. Mm -hmm. But, you know, we had a couple of political earthquakes happen um, in that time frame, and in particular, uh, Brexit, uh, the Brexit vote in, in Britain, uh, and then, of course, the election of Donald Trump in the U.S. Uh, so many people... I think assumed and maybe still assume uh, that the book was written in direct response to those particular events, but it was really uh, a much, um, it, it was the, the fruits of a longer set of reflections. And so I think to the extent that it had any virtues uh, um, that helped people understand the moment, it had, um, I think a lot to do with the fact it wasn't trying to interpret particular events, but it was really something that allowed people to understand those particular events in light of things that I'd, really been thinking about the nature of liberalism, uh, that those events helped to really throw into kind of a stark relief. Yeah. And, and as I was saying, you know, you, you got people commenting on the book across the ideological spectrum. You have people, people like, you know, former President Obama um, putting it in, in his book, end of year book list at some point. Um, so again, you had a lot of people reading, a lot of people talking about the topic. But I also want to ask, like, considering, you know, the the wide span of critiques of liberalism that we that we're seeing today, um, is there anything in particular you think is missing or that's not really being touched on within the current discourses critiquing liberalism? Well, in many ways, I think an awful lot of the commentary, even today, reflects what um, uh, was, I think, the frame in which many people read the book. And, and you've already mentioned a few times that it received a lot of attention on both sides of the political spectrum. And part of the reason for that is that both sides of the political spectrum found something both to like and something to really dislike in the book. And 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 that's that that fact reflects um, a core argument and thesis of the book, which is that that what we regard as our almost default political divide, in fact, is really a kind of division within the same house. It's a uh, or two sides of the same coin. Uh, that that what we call liberalism and what we call conservatism or what we call progressivism uh, and um, uh, and conservatism today are in fact really just two versions or two um, two forms and expressions of of broadly speaking the liberal philosophical worldview, and so it's not surprising that if this book was a critique, this book was a critique of liberalism, that each side would find the critique of the of its opposition within liberalism attractive. At the same time, it would find the critique of its own position to be upsetting, and um, uh, they would find uh, they would be opposed to that. So I had kind of almost these two readerships, which liked opposite halves of the book, if I can put it that way. And and I think that is still kind of the regnant way in which many people are reading the book. Uh, in other words, we're still pretty deeply shaped by these 
two liberal world, or, or let's say the, a single liberal worldview, which finds its expression in two different ways. But I would say that that um, one thing, and I, I can't say it's an effect of the book, it's probably concurrent with the book, and maybe the book was helpful to some people, that there's a growing number of people, and I think especially in a younger generation, who, who uh, for whom the diagnosis was helpful in helping them to articulate or put into words or to or to see something that they had been just had an inkling, which is that sort of a pox on both of your houses that they they found increasingly that both sides of the political spectrum effectively had little to offer them where they were now. And I think that that side of the um, or that aspect of the readership has been pretty encouraging and rewarding. Yeah, I mean, I definitely can include myself among that younger generation. Of I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, no, but for since I was young, you know, I was always skeptical about the the kind of mainstream duopoly, the life, the left right kind of binary, but never really had the tools or a language to meaningfully articulate what were my concerns or my critiques. So I think for me and for many people, like you gave us that language, you gave us a way to kind of make sense of of what's missing. Um, and I, I see it like when I've presented some of the ideas that you and other uh, critics of liberalism espouse to, to older people, um, I see what you're saying. Like They'll take some parts of it and say, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. But then there's this part that I can't get with. And I just I continue to run up against this cognitive dissonance of those who are very stuck on this, this libertarian, as you say, this uprooted or unbounded ideal or vision mm -hmm. of liberalism. Um, mm -hmm. Where, again, like you see that even though the mainstream left and right may place different accents on it, at the end of the day, again, it's this, this uprooted libertarian ideal. Um, so, again, this, this cognitive dissonance is like, I don't know, it's harder for, for people who are entrenched in the system to recognize it. But a lot of young people, like we see it for what it is and we, we want to talk about it. We want to critique it and name it. Um, and I'm starting to see um, in, a, in a more optimistic sense that there's there seems to be a greater willingness for collaboration between people on the left and right who are critical of liberalism. Um, and you you go further in depth in Regime Change, your new book, which came out earlier this year about this possibility for a coalition. Um, a lot of what, what a lot of young people are calling this horseshoe theory that mm -hmm. people who are most concerned about the working class, um, issues having to do with labor on both the left and right are finding meaningful ground for, for dialogue, for working together. So I'm curious if you can say a little bit more about what you're saying in regime change, what hope you have for such a coalition, et cetera. Yeah. Well, so I guess not to get too far ahead of ourselves, but the, yeah, so to just go back briefly to the critique. So that, so I think you point to the critique there uh, that, that was in why liberalism failed, which is that we have these two sides of the same coin. And by that same coin, I mean the, the coin of a philosophical tradition that broadly we could call liberalism in which the liberal, uh, the the term liberal reflects an idea and a, an ideal of freedom uh, that is um, has at its core the idea of being unbounded, a kind of unbounded freedom, uh, a freedom that is not restricted or restrained, except by um, really provable forms of harm uh, that want, that actions committed uh, or undertaken uh, in one state of freedom that those forms of harm might inflict on another human being um, or possibly on oneself, although the, the, the bar for that is pretty high. So, you know, is it is it enough to say that marijuana is bad for you um, or alcohol is bad for you uh, or pornography is bad for you to restrict it? So the bar is pretty high when it comes to restricting liberty that, that an individual wants to undertake for their own purpose and their own enjoyment. And the bar actually is pretty high in terms of the liberty that gets restricted in terms of other people. Uh, obviously, it has to constitute harm in some measurable way, uh, obviously physical harm, uh, and then it gets more difficult to prove the more uh, 
you know, the more abstract it becomes, the more uh, difficult it, it comes to prove how accumulated activities and actions can constitute harm. So with this idea of, of kind of unbounded liberty at the core of liberalism, what we think of as right and left liberalism is really a debate over what's the proper sphere in which this liberty is best achieved. Is it primarily in the economic sphere and the choices we make as consumers, the free unbounded choice of, uh, of economic actors buying and selling? And indeed, the expansion of that economic sphere to include more and more of human life. You know, so the argument that that everything or as much as possible should be brought into the orbit of the market. So, you know, schools and hospitals and healthcare and you know things that used to be under the domain, for example, of the churches, right, which were seen in some way as not functioning well in a market system, get pulled into a market system. Um, even dating, right, uh, what used to be like the matchmaker or the parents would set their children up. This this becomes a marketplace as your generation knows only too well, right? You go onto the you know, phone and swipe some direction or another and find the next potential mate. So the right in particular is um, affiliated or or identifies with this form or this this dimension of of unbounded freedom, and the left in particular argues that um, the ideal of unbounded freedom is especially achieved and pursued in the kind of social and kind of yeah. quasi-private spheres, right? especially regarding individual choice uh, in the sexual domain, uh, where we see the kind of sexual revolution unfolding and a lot of the main issues of contemporary identity politics. It, it, at the start of the book, oh, so just to conclude that thought, this so the what seems to be the great debate between left and right in the contemporary world or until recently in the contemporary world has been a really debate within this assumption that the ideal of politics and the aim of politics is to achieve the condition of unbounded freedom. And while it seems that our politics has been defined by a debate between economic libertarians and social libertarians, what in fact has arisen is a kind of libertarianism in both domains. So it's not one party wins and the other party loses. It's actually both parties kind of keep winning or the or the aspect of each of those sides, the kind of liberal aspect of each of those sides keeps on winning so that we have an ever more, you know, ever more expansion of this market ideal into every aspect of life. And of course, more and more of the world is turned into the single market, the global marketplace so that uh, it's no longer contained within a political unit or a political setting. Uh, it transcends any particular political entity. It's no longer bound by or to the nation. And at the same time, we've had, of course, this just constant expansion of the idea of personal liberation, personal emancipation, personal autonomy as regards our bodies, as regards how we how we sort of our bodies in the world with the kind with, with the effect, the practical consequence and the measurable consequence of the decline of marriage and the decline of people um, having children and the decline of relationships and relationality just just uh, measurable declines of our of our connectedness uh, associations and um, voluntarism and all of the measurements that uh, Robert Putnam finds in his book bowling alone so that that's kind of where I end the book why liberalism failed and that's where I start the book regime change which is that we have in some ways the kind of consequence of this pursuit of this liberal ideal in in certain ways has become realized in the world but it's been a it's been a realization that has really been to the advantage of a particular class in our society and a particular segment of our society. And that segment tends to be the highly educated, highly mobile, people with very portable skills, the kind of skills you get in a you know, kind of an elite college education where you don't have to be in any particular place other than you know, usually some kind of uh, um, contemporary desirable city setting with uh, a lot of 
a lot of opportunities for the kind of more abstract-based jobs, data-based jobs uh, that tend to dominate in the modern uh, modern economy. Whereas those people whose work and whose lives are much more rooted and much more bound to particular places and the kinds of work that kind of requires them to be in places and to work with particular things, in other words, the kind of working class, they have actually really um, not benefited. And in fact, in many ways, they've borne some really significant costs with the triumph of this ideal of the liberated human being. So it's not an it, it's it's not a system that equally benefits everyone. Of course, there is no system that equally benefits everyone, but it has actually been a, a sort of net negative for people in the latter situation. And we can measure that in all kinds of ways, the kind of decline of sort of, again, relationships, marriage, children, healthy, stable societies, um, the rise of deaths of despair, as they're called, uh, the decreasing uh, lifespan of people in these parts of our of our nation, the parts of the world. And there's been a kind of bottom-up rebellion of these of this working class, what's often called populism. And so the book Regime Change is really about the fact that we have a kind of, we have a ruling class that like ruling classes in many times and in many places is governing for its own benefit at the expense of the good and the shared good of those who are not participating in the benefits that they're enjoying. So it's a critique of the ruling class and a call for a change of the ethos of the ruling class, either an outright change of the ruling class, or in many ways, what could also just be a change in the ethos of the of the ruling class and a fundamental way of rethinking what the values uh, that that are kind of propounded and advanced by our contemporary ruling class, what those are and what those should be. Yeah, and like I was saying, though, like you're seeing more and more young people across the political spectrum um, interested in working class issues and possibly collaborating, again, from different ideological points of view. Um, do you, in general, I mean, I know you you go in depth in this and regime change, but like, do you think there's there's hope for this type of collaboration? Do you think a new kind of uh, political faction can be forged, forged out of these people who are on the so-called fringes of the, the political horseshoe? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you you did bring up the idea of the horseshoe, and I think here um, it's precisely, um, and and you also rightly bring up the fact that you have a really interesting set of developments where you have people on the political right now revisiting questions that once seemed inconceivable on the right. So, for example, you get people like you know JD Vance coming out in favor of the strike of the the workers who are striking in, in UAW. Um, uh, you know, something that would have once been thought during the Reagan years to be inconceivable, that a Republican uh, would be in favor of um, of the workers who are striking against the owners. Uh, the So you have, as you describe it, a kind of growing uh, elements with, un, you know, kind of historically that have been on the left, but whose voices have been, uh, I think, marginalized on the left in favor of kind of identity politics and the politics, obviously, of race and gender and sexuality that have become predominant on the left, often at the expense of a focus on on sort of economic class issues. At the same time, you have, I think, in significant part, because of the shift of the working class voters away from the kind of traditional left party in the United States and in Britain, uh, both the Democratic Party in the US and the Labour Party in Britain, and a shift of that working class electorate to support what had been traditionally not the working class party, the Republicans uh, and the Tories, you have a shift in a in typically a kind of younger or more, um, I don't know describe it exactly, either younger as well as, let's say, more maverick types within those uh, kind of traditionally not working class parties. So again, people populist like, like J.D. Vance or Josh Hawley or Marco Rubio. Uh, in Britain, um, I was just in England not too long ago and met a number of um, MPs on the Tory side 
who really are interested in shifting the politics in the same direction of a much more kind of conservative working class kind of a polity. Uh, and what's interesting and what you're pointing to is that these are people who find that they, they are, there are people on the left that they can work with, and people on the left are finding that they can work with these people on the right. But you're absolutely correct that they're kind of they're not at the core, and they don't form the largest part of their respective parties. They're not the they're not the dominant voices in their parties today. It's a kind of sort of an upstart within the parties. And it's on one level, it's kind of puzzling to me because it just seems to me if politics were really just about win elections um, as consistently and for as long as you possibly can, then it seems to me really undeniable that a party that would organize itself around this set of issues, essentially sort of kind of working class issues with a focus on healthy family, healthy community, solid, good working class jobs with an attentiveness to kind of restraining the free markets in areas where it can and ought to be restrained, thinking about um, issues like immigration, thinking about po policies like um, uh, again, strengthening private sector uh, unions or supporting them in various ways, these would really be winning policies for a long time. But it's simply the case that both parties are dominated by elements that I think are really extremely well-funded at this point and have a lot of institutional organization that exists that are in place. You know, Certainly on the right, there's just kind of this longstanding conservative set of institutions that were formed 50, 60, 70, 80 years ago and have kind of continued to shape the agenda even after the Republican electorate has changed and shifted. And at the same time, the kind of identity politics side of democratic politics has really come to predominate. If you think about the, the sort of left institutions of universities and media um, and, and uh, uh, you know, all of the kind of, you call them the mainstream institutions of American life, which are you know, really left-leaning, that both of these really strongly shape politics in ways that you could say um, almost are in contrast, in contrary to what the kind of electoral logic would seem to drive otherwise. So on the one hand, we have, the, as you're putting it, this kind of fringe elements that are forming this, you know, potentially forming this horseshoe, but they're fringe not because they lack any kind of political real potential, which I think they have, but because they don't reflect the kind of institutional and donor kind of commitments at the moment. So there's, I think there's a real mismatch in our politics. And so I, I don't know, I, I kind of oscillate between being kind of hopeful to the point of optimism about the possibility of a reconfiguration of our politics to being really deeply pessimistic that the power of these kind of institutional and financial forms that persist uh, will just kind of continue to determine the, what seems to me the really false and problematic political divide uh, across the West today. Yeah, and I think what's, what's important in what you're highlighting here is that so much of the dominant political narratives that we have right now really don't reflect the real concrete concerns of everyday Americans, especially those who haven't been gone through the university system or some kind of, I don't know, these elitist institutions. Um, the concerns on their minds are, again, much more concrete, much more practical than what the mainstream narratives would have it. And like you said, like this is fueled by a lot of money, you know, these, these, uh, the establishment has amassed enough money to perpetuate these kinds of, uh, these stories, these ideals that don't reflect the needs of the everyday American. Um, and it's, you know, the other, the other piece of what I see in your books is like, a lot of people pull out issues having to do with ideology, with policy, philosophy, but I think people overlook the, the more underground cultural implications of what you're writing about. And the first time I really picked up on it was, um, you, you spoke with Chris Arnotti, the author of Dignity, at um, the mm -hmm. New York Encounter a few years ago. 
And, you know, he's this guy, he's a journalist, left Wall Street to spend his time with people in the, the poorest parts of the, of the U.S. And I think seeing you guys in dialogue with each other really opened my eyes to, like, how the political and ideological issues are, um, I don't know, like how they speak to what's happening in, in people's everyday lives. And in particular, you talking about this unbounded, this uprooted ideal, like, it made me look at how, you know, I, as someone who went to a fairly elite university, um, have kind of absorbed these cultural norms, which as I'm growing up, as I'm kind of living them to their, their fullest extent, I'm seeing like are not super satisfying. So for example, like having to, to uproot, move to a different city in order to get a job, um, I have to leave behind my family and friends. I have to leave behind the stores, the businesses, the restaurants that I've, that I've gotten used to that are, that are home to me. Um, and I don't know, like this, this uprooted ideal demands that we sacrifice certain basic things that are part of our human nature and act as if it's, you know, it's no big deal. And for a lot of people, again, people who haven't been passed through elite uh, institutions, that kind of sacrifice is not really tenable. Like it, it really takes away from the, the dignity, the meaning of, of their lives. Um, and it, what ends up happening also is that it sucks, um, sucks out all the, the tools that build for a meaningful local culture. You know, if all these young people are moving to cosmopolitan city centers, leaving their, you know, their local, their hometowns, um, what incentive is it to really build up the life in these smaller cities or suburbs? Um, and I, I'm curious for you, like, again, you're, you're teaching at Notre Dame, like you're, you're a highly educated person. What is it like for you reconciling your beliefs, your values with the fact that, yeah, like you are working within these types of institutions? Well, I think in some of them, um, it's easier for me to reconcile that now than when I uh, was working uh, in my previous academic position, which was at Georgetown University, uh, a great university, and I had wonderful students, uh, but I was living very much in the way in which you describe um, in the sense that um, my, I, I felt I was living a life that was disintegrated, disintegrated. It was not integrated um, in order to afford life in the D.C. area, like a lot of young people know all too well. Uh, um, you know, we had, we had a family, so we had to live pretty far away uh, in the in the suburbs or in the burbs of the burbs, the exurbs. Uh, and it was always a, a long drive to get to, to campus. Uh, this meant, like all of my colleagues, um, getting to campus was difficult because of the you know the amount of traffic you have in the D.C. area. Uh, so that one went, um, one went to campus relatively infrequently when one, one had to teach, one tended to get there uh, ideally after rush hour and leave before rush hour, maybe two days a week. So it meant that my colleagues and I were on campus relatively briefly during the course of a day. And so I didn't have much of a relationship with them. It meant I was work, I was, you know, I was often away from my family and that was a place that was distant. My family had no real connection to the university where I taught, which I think um, that's not necessarily, that's not how it has to be. And indeed, uh, now it's not how it is for me. And, and moreover, um, my students um, didn't get to sort of integrate with me, with my home and my family, which I think, thinking back to when I was a student, being able to go over a professor's house was always a great thrill. And something that got you a glimpse into the life of what it was to be a you know, professor with a family. And they were both ordinary people, but they had lots of books and you could look at their bookshelves and kind of get an idea of what, what kinds of things they read. So all of that was deeply dissatisfying. And when I made the move and our family made the move to go to Notre Dame, it was precisely, it wasn't necessarily a more highly ranked institution. Um, it was really a kind of lateral move in a lot of ways. But in terms of now having an integrated life, it was a world, a world of difference. So I walk, I'm able to walk to campus. Students can walk to my house. My children are very familiar with the university now, including, of course, going to football games. But not only that, they they know where I they know where I spend my days. I'm able to go in whenever I want. Uh, I know my colleagues. In fact, my, many of my colleagues are in my neighborhood. 
Uh, they're my they're my friends, my neighbors. Uh, this is an integrated life, and this I think is something that an integrated life is something that happens only in America by a kind of a conscious choice yeah. more often than not. In other words, what used in some ways you could say what used to be automatic for most human beings in most places and in most times, which is that your life was not disintegrated, is now difficult in the context of modern America. You have to seek it out, and it often will require a certain amount of sacrifice in order to achieve it. I mean, I was fairly lucky because Notre Dame is a really terrific university. Really, Again, I get great students. It's prestigious. I, I don't, didn't have to pay a price in a sense there, but I did have to move to the Midwest. It's cold here, and you know, South Bend is not Washington, D.C. Uh, on the other hand, it's not Washington, D.C. It's, yeah. uh, it's, a, it's a kind of humane place. It's, uh, it's a decent-sized city, and there's lots of really wonderful little little nooks and crannies here um, amid the, the sort of post-industrial blight that is the, the Rust Belt. So I think when I speak especially to students, one of the things I encourage them to think about is not only, you know, what's the ideal job and how much, you know, you know that one should consider the amount of money that one will make as the, the main goal uh, that one thinks about in one's job, but think about the, con think about the context in which you'll be undertaking that work. Think about the kind of neighborhood that you live in. Yeah. Uh, eventually, having a having a family, uh, in all likelihood, with our with our students at Notre Dame. Think about the kinds of supports or lack of support networks that you'll have if you're not living close to family. Are you going to be living close to people who can sort of step in, uh, who will help out um, as people in our neighborhood do when people fall into difficulty? And and here again, you know, reflecting the things you were just saying, we don't tend to put that into the equation or how we think about what's a valuable kind of work or the kind of place we want to live. Even, even the very simple thing, which my wife and I, we realized was very important when, when we had children, does your, does your neighborhood have sidewalks? Yeah. Which it's actually surprising how many neighborhoods in America don't have sidewalks. And when you're, when you're people who walk your child around in the, in, in a baby carriage, it really makes a big difference. If you have sidewalks, you're not walking on the, you know, the curb of the street uh, and sidewalks just make life just much more pleasant uh, when you're, when you're trying to give your ch child some fresh air um, or you know, even yourself. So uh, these are all things that you have to be consciously thinking about because they don't happen automatically. And in fact, it's, uh, it, you could say it's almost the opposite in America. We're a very wealthy country. There are lots of opportunities, but one thing we're not really good at is creating a kind of community and it takes conscious effort and foresight and intention to achieve it. Yeah. And as you, as you're saying about the conversation you have with your students, um, you know, being strongly rooted in, in your family and in your neighborhood in a particular local culture is not necessarily rewarded or look highly upon for, for young people today. It's not, you know, a, a sign of success. And I like I see that for myself, like I, you know, being in, in New York, you know, you, you're surrounded by people who left their hometowns to pursue a job, to pursue whatever career path. And I find myself like, you know, my family's in New Jersey, they're right here. So I am spending a lot of my time taking care of my elderly family members, my grandparents, um, trying to stay connected to events within the old neighborhood. And a lot of people look at that as like, you know, it's kind of surprising, like, why are you dedicating so much time and energy? to fostering those roots, to maintaining those roots, rather than pursuing, again, career path or whatever it may be. So like you see how there's that pressure on young people to uproot themselves. Um, and, and again, to like to be immersed in these, these kind of cosmopolitan city centers where you say this more in, in why liberalism fail, where it's like very much a monoculture. Like you see that when you go to these, uh, these major cities around the US, even around the world, a lot of similarities. There isn't too much of a difference. Whereas, you know, what you're saying about South Bend, it sounds like 
there's much more of a lively local culture. There's a, a particularity to it that maybe you won't see when you go to other cities. Um, so I don't know, I'm, I'm curious to hear just if you could say a little bit more about where you're living now, like what is it that makes that locale unique? What, what, what do you find there that you probably wouldn't find in other, in other towns or cities? I, I don't know if there's anything. Um, I mean, you're right. It's a particular place. It has its own, its own distinctive qualities. Um, but um, I'm put to mind of a um, uh, put to mind of a book. Um, oh, the title which is escaping me at the moment. Uh, uh, something, something. The Thunder Kid. Um, it'll it'll come to me. Uh, the, that book begins. Um, with a with the author talking about the town he grew up in might have been in Iowa I think maybe it was Iowa or Kansas and I can't even remember the town see I can't remember the name of the title I can't remember the name of the town I can't even you know, I can't remember the title of the book but what I remember is the description and this he said uh, in my town we had the best ice cream parlor we mm. had the best pizza restaurant we had the best park for kids to play in we had the best uh, you know, uh, whatever, what, best merry-go-round uh, in the down, uh, just whatever the, in a sense, when you're, when you grow up in a town like that, it has all of these particular things. And when you grow up in that place, very often, it's just the best one. It's just the best of that particular thing. And it's partly just because it's where you grew up and it's home and it's what you care about and it's what you know, and it's what you're used to. So in certain ways, I would say, yeah, South Bend has very distinctive things. First of all, it has the University of Notre Dame, which not you know, not every not every hometown is going to have a world class research university, which also happens to be you know a, a magnet for football college football fans, and is this very distinctive Catholic university that draws into its orbit a lot of young, very kind of more traditional, large uh, young families. So it's got a lot of features that are very distinct. And at the same time, it has a lot of things that I think you would just find find in hometown USA anywhere. We do have the best pizza place in America here. It's Rocco's Pizza. Everyone knows that in South Bend, you go to Rocco's Pizza. Uh, and uh, um, all of those things that make one's hometown special, it has. I think that the in many ways, the problem that you're touching on is that these kinds of places thrive when you have the kind of, I would say, almost the natural distribution of talent mm -hmm. that seems to just be built into the fabric of our, you know, the kind of the miracle of human reality, which is that, you know, God in his wisdom or Darwin in his indifference <laughs> um, spreads kind of talent widely, disperses it, you know, uproariously, randomly, seemingly randomly in all the different places of the, of, of the world. And that every town typically has people in it who are really just very good at doing the things that they're very good at doing. Not everyone is really good at doing the things that they're you know that they do, but some people are really good at it. Um, they're really good at being lawyers or doctors, surgeons, uh, professors, teachers, ministers, and every every place, hamlet, town, small city, large city, in America and the entire world can tell stories and often has statues and plaques and memories and memorializes the people who made outsized contributions to these places. And I can tell you the names of the people in South Bend. One of them was Mayor Pete Buttigieg, right? Who no, no longer lives here, but used to live here, uh, very close to where I live. That there are people who grew up in these places who are really talented and who can make really outsized contributions to these places. And mm. part of the real problem in, mod in the modern world and in modern America is that our economic and social and educational system siphons all those people all out yeah. 
from all of the places of the world and congregates them first in elite universities and then sends them out to like four or five cities in the United States and maybe London and Paris or something. And so it basically is kind of a strip mining operation where, where it just removes all of the valuable commodities, as it were, like a strip mine uh, operation from all of these places and leaves what you typically find in a strip mining operation, leaves behind a pretty devastated landscape where the people who would once have been kind of really bearing this extraordinary responsibility of leading and guiding and leaving a legacy and um, creating and fostering these wonderful places uh, that we find fewer and fewer of these places. I mean, these places still exist, but they tend to be desiccated. And young, talented people don't want to stay in them because well, there's nobody to talk to and there's all the interesting people live in New York or Washington, D.C. or Chicago. And so we tend to view these places as places that you leave. You, you, you would never want to stay around in a place like South Bend. But this is not how it always was, or, uh, mm -hmm. or we could say this is not how it has to be. It was, it was a matter of our own human choice and intention that led to this set of consequences. And I think it's been really bad for our politics. If we look at the divide in our country right now, we talk about red versus blue states. But that's not that that's not a reflection of what we're actually talking about. The divide now is a very small number of sort of blue archipelagos of sort of urban centers of highly educated, um, mobile ruling class. And a very large number of people in more rural or the less desirable smaller towns and cities who are not participating as much in this kind of modern, more abstract data-driven economy. And that's really yeah. bad for our politics, yeah. right? Anyone who's upset about the political divide today has to look at this fact of how we've organized our society and say that there's something going on here that's not just at the level of, you know, this party says this and this party says this. It's about how we have really structured our society in ways that I think are not fundamentally healthy. Yeah. And what you're saying about, you know, the example of Mayor Pete, like having these these figures who are exalted within the local culture's history. Like I see that like this is a it's a really important point that, you know, we ask if the the heroes we look up to, are they only people who are whether they're celebrities, entertainers, major politicians, or are there people who actually live in our communities who are our local heroes, people that we we live near people that we can talk to one on one. We can have a concrete relationship with. Like, you can see cultures who have those local heroes. Like, there's something much more lively, something much more vibrant than rather than for for people to look up to someone who lives you know miles away who has no idea who they are. Um, and it's it's making me think about like also what you're saying about the sidewalks. Like, there there are a lot of these practical, very very concrete everyday factors that I think get overlooked in the broader you know, the ideological, the political, philosophical debate about these issues. Um, and, and again, when you said the thing about sidewalks, it made me think about uh, Jane Jacobs and uh, the life and death of great American cities, which I'm almost finished reading. And you look at someone like Jacobs, you look at someone like Wendell Berry, like Christopher Lash, who have a lot to say about the state of the culture, but they're more focused, again, on like everyday lived realities, everyday factors that really make a difference. In, in how, you know, the quality of life and are not just focused on the abstract uh, philosophical or political level. So I don't know, I I'm, I'm wanna ask you like, on that more concrete everyday level, like are there other factors, like whether it's the sidewalk, whether it's having these, these statues, like what other things should people be paying attention to regardless of their political commitments that could make everyday life in their towns and their cities more, more vibrant and more human? Well, I guess, um, you know, in addition to, uh, to thinking, giving a lot of thought to uh, the broader context in which 
we will all be living our lives. Those of us, especially who have a degree of choice about these things. Uh, you know, so we have many, many of our fellow countrymen who aren't really in a position to choose whether they're going to live here or there. We might think theoretically they are, but as a practical matter, they're not. Uh, they're just, uh, they're generally where they are. Uh, and that's fine. Uh, but um, to think about the the ways that our participation and contribution to these places uh, is is in fact you could say this is a part of our work and our vocation uh, that that this this idea that I'm using language now that has, ultimately it's religious in its origins the word vocation you know if you're a Catholic man young man or boy of a certain age you're very familiar with the word vocation because you probably would be asked by your priest uh, do you think you have a vocation which didn't mean do you have think you have a job it was do you think you might have a, a calling to the priesthood the word vocation is from the Latin word vocare which means to to call to to be called, uh, to, to, to give voice to. Uh, but in the language, in this religious language, is, is then has all of the sort of the, the implications or the associations that one's work is more, or one should and can consider one's work as more than just, you know, getting this job done, doing this particular, you know, task for the day, that uh, bound up with every form of work is uh, is this uh, potential for the idea of vocation, uh, for the aspiration of vocation, which is how does one's work contribute not just to my paycheck, but to the good of my community, to the broader health and continuity and um, value of the of the places where I am. And that can be in a very narrow sense um, in the case of one's town, and it can be in a broader sense in the case of one's nation. So in some cases, this is easier to think about and reflect on. Some jobs seem to more naturally allow for this reflection on vocation. Some kinds of work seem more naturally to reflect the idea of vocation. But I think, um, in a sense, every form of work can and ought to be considered in light of this idea of vocation. And here's where I think we often are tempted to divide our lives between the kind of life of the private person and life of my my sort of working person. And this idea of the vocation is is that which kind of allows one to bridge that, to bridge these, what seem to be these two separate things. Uh, and, and I think in, in a world in which this idea of, vo of vocation is alive and well, we can think about how our, again, what we think about as our private or our home or our, our non-work lives ought to be considered in continuity with the ways in which our work can contribute to the goods of our places. Uh, so I, I think among other things, we this we we tend to undervalue or devalue those people who may not have good jobs uh, because it doesn't seem like they're doing something valuable. But in fact, in the light of this idea of vocation, all work is valuable. All jobs are valuable. The contribution of everyone is a contribution to the whole. And so I think the the idea of of being a part of this whole is something that to get back to the topic of liberalism, liberalism tends to disintegrate the idea that there is a whole. It tends to, it tends to uh, shatter this idea of wholeness into very discrete, separate, and individual parts. Putting this back together again begins at the local level. And you've mentioned a few of the names of some of the authors who write about this quite a bit, Wendell Berry being probably primary among them, someone who I've read uh, and continue to read with great profit and from whom I continue to learn from. And one of the things that Wendell Berry continuously stresses is how the modern economy disintegrates. And it disintegrates, and by disintegrating, it shoves certain kinds of work into the realm of non-valuable. This is a non-valuable kind of work. Farming is, you know, some kind of sometimes put cast to the side, 
or in the case of those who go to um, large, uh, sorry, elite universities, working with your hands, being a you know mm -hmm. uh, someone in the trades or someone who you know electricians or plumbers, that kind of work is is regarded as low, a low kind of work, something that's kind of beneath consideration. And this is this is uh, this is a form of thinking that reflects this disintegration of our civilization. Because look, we don't have good plumbing and good electricity and good plumbers and good electricians, then you know, good luck to you in your uh, in your elite university, right? So all, all of this is to say, I think, um, uh, beginning to weave together this idea that we are part of something greater than ourselves. And it's hard to do that at, at an abstract level. It really has to kind of take place at a much more concrete level. And this is why the idea of being part of something local and concrete and something that's visible to us is so centrally important. Yeah. And uh, just before we wrap things up, I did want to ask, um, well, first I want to share one, one final thing, you know, people who listen to this podcast, who read the Substack, know that, you know, we cover a lot of topics having to do with ethnic identity. Um, and one of the reasons why I got very much into this topic, aside from my own, my own family's history, um, was after reading why liberalism failed, I started reading, uh, Michael Novak's the rise of the unmeltable ethnics. And, you know, he has his own kind of ideological angle, but what I, the overlap that I do see is this emphasis on rootedness, particularly in the culture that one comes from, especially those of us who come from immigrant families. And I feel like, again, reading that in tandem with why liberalism failed and regime change, that gets helped me in, in my own personal life to articulate how much this kind of assimilationist ideology, especially again, like living in immigrant enclaves in New Jersey, New York, how much it really does kind of, uh, kind of suck you into this, this rootless, uproot, um, you know, unbounded ideology that's, that's so prevalent in America. And I see that, you know, there are more and more young people who are trying to recover their ethnic identities, trying to learn the language of their grandparents or visiting the homeland. So I'm just, I'm curious if you have any thoughts or any observations about the role that recovering one's ethnic identity, the, the identity, the culture of their their ancestors can, can, I don't know how that can help them to recover their roots, their sense of being bound to something particular and meaningful. Well, so, I'm, well, I, I'm, I think I've already mentioned I'm Catholic and I'm a particular kind of Catholic. I'm an Irish Catholic, uh, predominantly my family's uh, background. And uh, I think I'm, you know, maybe being, I think now fourth generation, third generation Irish, I have to count one, two, three, I guess fourth, uh, fourth generation Irish American, uh, your what you describe among you know some of your peers is um, it's very bittersweet. Uh, it's very um, it it speaks to me, but it speaks to me maybe for reasons um, that I don't mean to be um, pessimistic or depressive, but it speaks to me because the desire to kind of retain or reconnect with something is as much a sign of loss as it is of something that's being um, gained. Uh, that uh, it seems to be that the American experience, and I think this is a core feature of what liberalism is in America, that liberalism is about the uh, the gradual stripping off of one's cultural inheritance and one's cultural identity, and its replacement with a kind of faux um, or a kind of superficial form of culture, yeah, even if it's one's original or, or inherited culture. In, in other words, that... Um, a culture is a, is a, I would say, I would describe it as a kind of almost pervasive environing surrounding. It's a kind of, it's the, it's the water in which one swims. In a, when one lives in a particular kind of culture, it's almost invisible to you because it's just everywhere. It, it, it is what is. It's as, it's almost as natural, uh, um, and as 
automatic as what the you know the trees the leaves falling off the trees as they're doing right now in South Bend. It's just something that is and it occurs and one doesn't necessarily give a lot of thought or reflection upon it. And it's when it begins to be lost or it becomes attenuated, it becomes um, uh, in, it becomes in some ways increasingly visible, precisely because now it's being lost. Precisely now because in order to retain it you have to really give thought to it in the same way we were talking earlier about how one has to really focus and concentrate and work on being a part of a community. So it's at the point when you begin thinking about how do I retain the, these forms of identity, that it's in the process of being lost, it's being stripped off. And, and within a generation or two following yours, if it follows the same trajectory as the sort of liberal trajectory of America in general, uh, it will be largely gone and it will come back as a kind of fashion. It will become come back as a restaurant you can go to or a, or a holiday like St. Patrick's Day, which is, you know, has bears no relationship to what actually, you know, the worship of St. Patrick uh, would actually look like. So there's a there's um, there's something quite quite poignant about what you're describing. Uh, and it seems to be just built into the fabric of living in a society whose core idea of freedom means to free oneself from one's culture, to free oneself from an unchosen identity, to, to be liberated from something that I haven't myself selected and chosen, that, that, that freedom is only considered to be genuine when you have consciously chosen it. But in the book, While Liberalism Failed, what I note, and this is a kind of the weird, sad, and almost maddening paradox, this form of freedom and this idea of freedom itself becomes the kind of unchosen way of life or the unchosen preconditions of a liberal human being. In other words, there's no, there's no condition that's genuinely doesn't have its kind of preconditions for how it is we're supposed to think about the world and ourselves and our place in it. So I, I, I don't know if I have any real insightful, uh, you know, advice or insights into what one does as a culture and as a as someone who values the idea of a culture. Which is why, in some ways, I end the book "Why Liberalism Failed" with the suggestion that um, one has to accept the fact that in a liberal regime, if one values the idea of living in a kind of community and in a kind of in a culture in the way we're describing it, one has to be a builder. Yeah. You can't simply be someone who inhabits. You have to be a builder of that. You have to be a participant in helping to make that and to sustain it and to hopefully pass it along. It means that you actually have to be intentional about it. And uh, you know, I mentioned, I think I quote or I cite uh, the idea of the Benedict Option uh, by Rod Dreher, which had come out around the same time. And when I invoke it, it's not so much that we we think about how we preserve a culture by a kind of retreat into a safe, relatively enclosed space. It's about building it out and inviting others within it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And um, because I think what you're describing precisely is the kind of hunger of people who recognize they've been deprived of something and don't necessarily know, and none of us has a good roadmap for what you do when it's been lost. So all you can do is really just begin to build again. And so part of that, you know, for, for me, that was joining this community here in South Bend. It wasn't going back to Ireland. It was to find some, some place that I thought, you know, these people are also interested in building this community. And I think that's the that's the difficult task that we have right now, uh, living in this kind of late, post-modern, liberal America, uh, which is it's really good at devastating cultures and it's not good at, at 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 creating new ones. And so that's kind of our task. Yeah, and I, I just want to reiterate that you know even if um, 
people who read your work don't have all the answers by the end of it. You know, like even if uh, even if people come out with different conclusions, disagree ideologically, sure. I, I feel like what's most essential about the content in the books is, um, you know, you're really helping people to put a name on a sensation that, again, especially the younger generation has been feeling, but doesn't really know how to put into words. And that's, I don't know, like that's a huge service to a lot of people, but also the fact that you're coming at these issues, not purely from a theoretical, but you're also proposing like, okay, we can build something. Like we're not, we're not totally hopeless. Like we have the agency to, to do stuff on the ground. And that's, again, like having that kind of measured yet hopeful uh message is um i don't know like it, it gives people something something real to start with so mm-hmm. again i I'm, I'm grateful to to have been able to engage with your works but also to, to get to discuss them further with you on here so thank you so much for coming on oh thanks it was it was really nice speaking with you thanks for having me awesome and uh, so you can pick up his books why liberalism failed regime change among many others online bookstores and uh, patrick you're on twitter correct i am regrettably but yes X, right. I am occasionally uh, checking on X. Yes, <laughs> so you can follow him there. And uh, thank you for listening. And again, Patrick, thank you, thank you for coming on. My pleasure.